Welcome to Revolutionize Your Retirement Radio, bringing you insights and strategies to help you create a magnificent and fulfilling second half of life. Here's your host, certified professional retirement coach and best-selling author, Dr. Dorian Mincer. I want to welcome everybody to my fourth Tuesday Revolutionize Your Retirement interview with Expert Series. I'm Doreen Mincer, owner of Revolutionize Retirement and your host for this program. I've been familiar with George's work over the years because I do a lot of, I've done a lot of stuff and still do a lot of stuff with, with money coaching, even though I'm not a financial planner. And I've just been really influenced with his work. And actually, those of you who've either worked with me or have heard me speak, I quote George's and use George's questions, which he's going to be talking about, because there's just such powerful questions on helping people think about their own dream and their own life and life planning. George has written a number of books that include Seven Stages of Money Maturity, Lighting the Torch, which is about the kinder method, and it's really for people working in financial planning, financial planning, A Golden Civilization, and The Map of Mindfulness. Another book is Transforming Suffering into Wisdom, Mindfulness, and the Art of Inner Listening, and it's applying meditation to you and for everyday life. And then he has another book, Life Planning for You, How to Design and Deliver the Life of Your Dreams, and also a song for Hana and the spirit of, you might have to say this, Joe, Leho Ula? Leho Ula. Leho Ula. Okay, thank you. Great. So... George is an author, speaker, meditation teacher, and father of the financial life planning movement. And he's going to describe today how life planning delivers an exhilarating and meaningful experience for the client. He's going to briefly discuss life planning's five-phase evoke method, which is his own uh, method, part of his Kinder Institute, based on mindfulness and that utilizes deep listening and communication skills to uncover clients' dreams of freedom and then delivers them. He's going to share the evolution of his life planning work as described in his latest book, A Golden Civilization and the Map of Mindfulness, and how it's being used by groups globally to rethink civilization through an interactive visioning strategy that goes beyond the self or even the larger community and considers the entirety of civilization and empowers leaders to develop the world they want to live in right now. And I was just saying to George, I just think that it's so timely, just given everything that's been going on in our country. And, you know, perhaps George will also share a little of, of maybe what influenced the writing of this book. I just, I literally just finished reading it and recommend it to everybody. And I've read a number of his other books and they're all just really chocked full of just really important information. So, George, I am so happy that you're with us. And you've had such an interesting life and journey and have done so much. So can you just share maybe a little about how you found your way to the financial planning process that you've developed? Well, I, I thanks, Dorian. And by the way, I just love the title of your series, uh, Revolutionized Retirement. Uh, fantastic title, and I think fits nicely with, with how we're going to talk today. I found my way to financial planning because I, I actually think of myself mostly as a poet and also as a spiritual practitioner. So that might seem strange. Why is it that, that I would then become a financial planner? And the really very simple reason is that it was after the 60s that I heard this, this uh, saying. It was in the 70s or 80s that if you follow your passion just follow your passion and the money will follow. And I never found anybody who would pay me for my poems or for one of my meditations. So, so I went back to the kinds of skills that I was good at in college, which had to do with mathematics and economics and all of that, even though I majored, ended up majoring in English and, and just figured that doing financial planning, actually it started as a tax practice, but that perhaps I could save the money that I needed by sensible planning before I even know what plan, what financial planning was to live a life as, as a poet and as a spiritual practitioner. So that's, that's really how I got hmm. there, Dorian. Hmm. 
And so along the way, what, well, how do you define life planning? I mean, maybe that would be a, yeah, um, great kind of an, an important thing to think about. And what is it and how do you distinguish, distinguish it from the more traditional financial planning? So I think all traditional financial planners, certainly the best of them, would describe their planning in a way that sounds similar to life planning because a, a great financial planner is going to look at the client's goals and objectives and then chart a path toward them via all of the different tools of financial planning, including investments and budgets and pensions, retirement plans, insurance, estate planning, taxes, and all the rest. So I I, I am a certified financial planner in addition to being a, a life planner. And what I realized early on was that too many people in the financial planning business were selling products. And so their objective was counter often to what and conflicted often with what the client's objectives might be. And in addition, those who weren't selling products, too many of them would have a cursory relationship to the passions and purposes of life, the meaning of the client's life. And given perhaps my my interest, I, I was passionate about meaning and de- delivering mm-hmm. that into the world. And as I met many of my clients in my tax pri- practice, I recognized that many of them have had a yearning for meaning, but they they and, and for living it more purposefully, but they had trouble articulating it. The the pressures of finance were too great for them. The pressures of, of paying the mortgage mm. and if, if they even owned a home, of paying for the car, of funding their kids' education, or just of making putting the next meal on the table were so great that that most people that I knew forgot what their purpose might be for living, what it's really all about. And it was so, I was so passionate about my own that I could see, I could spot this in my clients. And I discovered a way of exciting clients about who they really wanted to be and then of convincing them using financial planning tools that they could deliver that person into the world in short order. Which is such a beautiful approach, and I think just recognizing it's it's not the money per se, as you're saying, but it's how one wants to live one's life, the real holistic looking at it. When did you start having your own institute and, you know, and sort of developing this plan and training other people? How long ago was that, and how did that evolve? Yeah. The Institute was almost 20 years ago, shortly after Mm -hmm. I wrote the Seven Stages book, The Seven Stages of Money Maturity. That book Mm -hmm. influenced hugely. It's still my bestseller. I don't know that it's my my best book because I love my recent books, but it's still the bestseller. And it really influenced how people thought about money. In many ways, it's a psychology of money. And the reason that I started the Institute was that people were misinterpreting (laughs) the book, uh, The Seven Stages. Mm -hmm. They thought it was important to become a psychologist in relation Mm -hmm. to their clients. And they really weren't trained to do psychology. And the great, I think, beautiful thing about life planning is it looks forward. And it uses kind of the inspiration of of the goals to drive a life, a healthy life, into existence, whereas therapy often looks back and is looking at those troublesome areas where we got stuck in some way and dives into them and looks at how to um, unravel them or unleash them. So I I find the life planning that we do now of of identifying these purposes to be much more efficient, not 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 only than financial planning, than but than most therapy and that I say that with enormous respect and and passion and love for the therapy profession it's just an incredible profession of listening of a professional to their their client well it's a different process I mean I really agree with you I'm trained in both therapy and hmm. and coaching and the the 
coaching model lends itself to the life planning because you're absolutely right. It's looking and being in the present and moving forward, which I think is so important to do. And some of some of the newer therapies are are actually that way too. But I think the life planning mm. gives itself so much with the you know life planning kind of coaching model, and then you've got the yeah. added financial piece, which just adds that other. Such an important underpinning to it. Mm. Can you tell the mm. listeners more about your evoke model? Because I think it's, it's it's a lovely way to explain the the process that you've developed. And I, I know mm. this, you have a slide on it, so maybe you can even refer to you can refer people to the slide. Yeah. So here's the the slide for those of you who are at your computer and can see the it's a five phase process. So evoke is an acronym with each of the initials standing for five different terms, starting with exploration, going to vision, going then to obstacles, then to knowledge, and then to execution. Traditional financial planning is primarily in the knowledge area, knowing all the different ways that money works through the law and products and all of that, and in execution. So that's traditional financial planning. The goal area that traditional financial planning touches on, but in, in our view, doesn't go nearly deep enough to, to transform clients' lives and to deliver the client into their dream of freedom. We break that, that goal-oriented arena into three areas we call exploration, vision, and obstacles. And exploration is just as, as a coach and as a therapist, Doreen, you'll, you'll love this. Uh, exploration is just really listening. I mean, we, I, I, I tease an audience of financial planners that we, that we only ask one question in the exploration meeting, which might last for an hour or two. And mm-hmm. that question is, why are you here? And then I and then I hesitate and I say, well, there is a second question, and everybody laughs. And 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 I, I said the second question we might ask a number of times, and it goes like this: anything else? <laughs> and the secret of the meeting is just pausing and demonstrating with emotional intelligence. And again, that's something that the life planning training echoes in the therapy training. We. We train to be great listeners and to be empathic listeners. And in this meeting, not active listeners so much, but we show the empathy by gesture or by tone of voice and or by an appreciation. Just, wow, that's so wonderful. Pause, allowing the client to absorb that. Anything else? (laughs) And. And in this way, building trust that the client realizes we listen and we care. And what it enables a client to do is to go to those difficult places that they normally would never share with a financial advisor. And most people won't share them with their good friends. And those are the places where they're uh, troubled and have been held back in some way. So these are... This is a classic therapy area or those places where they have a secret aspiration and they never mention it because it's almost embarrassingly out of sync with how they've been taught to view the world somehow. So we set it up so we don't ask about those things in this first meeting, but because we listen so empathically and so inspirationally, optimistically, and quietly with lots of room for the client, that the client naturally moves and sometimes quite suddenly, like a quantum event, they suddenly reveal that, you know, their 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 father had who controls you know, money in the family had done something untoward with some of the children, or that their secret aspiration is to play saxophone on Wednesday nights in jazz clubs. And and they've never approached it. So, but so that that that's the exploration meeting. And then we go to vision and we go to obstacles. Vision has those questions that you mentioned earlier. The three questions. Mm-hmm. We have a number of vision exercises, and the purpose of vision is not so much to listen as to articulate with the client, have the client articulate all the details of what a great life would look like, an extraordinary life. And for us to repeat after them 
or read from writing they've done, what those elements of that life are, and then to pause, allowing the client once again to build on that vision. So it's very exciting and inspirational for a client. And at the end or at the end of reading everything the client has written or shared, we then build what we call a torch. So that was the name of, of my second money book, Lighting the Torch. And we build, a, we kind of make an offer. So it goes something like this. If, if as a consequence of our work together, I or we were to deliver to you this, you know, playing the jazz in the nightclub, healing the family wounds around money, living much more in the country than you've been living, and, and a few other personal things within, say, a year, a year and a half, how would that be? And we try to make it so inspiring, so extraordinary compared to how the client's been thinking. They've been thinking maybe in 10 years they'd do it or maybe at retirement. So we, we shrink the time frame and it heightens anxiety, but it heightens excitement. And that's energy to make it happen. And then the third meeting, if, the, if we've done the vision meeting well, and we ask the client what could possibly get in the way. The client often says nothing I'm going for it. <laughs> or if they share anything, they're more likely to say, well, I guess I could get in the way. And occasionally they'll share money obstacles, and, and usually there's something in there. And then you, we just go at those obstacles in a very rapid fire. It's, again, very different. Each of these meetings has a different quality of listening and a different quality of engagement. And the obstacles meeting is rapid fire, going at time frames. So that's the evoke process, Ron. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful listening to you. Could you, w would you mention the three questions because I, they are so powerful, and I think, yeah. I think just hearing you ask them because I, I just know from my own work too. I mean, there's so many. There's such a taboo about money and there's shame and on so many things that could be obstacles or guilt or not understanding it or whatever. And and your questions just do help to ignite that kind of energy you're talking about that help people begin to realize uh, it's their life and, you know, they need to think about how they want to live it. So I'd love you to share those with the listeners. Great. Well, I'm going to, what I'm going to do, if it's all right with you, Dorian, is I'm going to Put the questions up, question one, question two, question three. Okay. But rather, rather than read them, I'm just going to give you my own flavor of them because okay. people can always come back to the, to the writing. So let's go to the first. The first question is just imagining that you have all the money that you need for the rest of your life. It's like you wake up one morning and you go, wow, I, I didn't, or you won the lottery. You've got all that you need for the rest of your life. And the, the question is very simple. Just what would you do? How would you, how would you live your life? What would change? And, and so it's appropriate as a first question because we go deep in the second and third. And if you're working with an advisor, you're more likely to go, oh, you can't ask that kind of question to me. You know, I don't know you well enough or I don't trust you. But this breaks the ice. And we begin to think about what money, just how it would free us up if we had that much uh, freedom. And we'll use it in the financial plan later. We'll come back to elements of it that are are quite possible. So that's the first question. But what we really want is to get to the layers of meaning that would transform life and build huge excitement and uh, passion about delivering something into the world. So the second question goes much deeper. And this this time what happens it's a scenario, and you visit your doctor who tells you that you only have five to ten years left to live. So you'll live at least five years, and you won't make it to the end of, to the, end of the tenth. So sometime in that time frame, you're, you're going to pass away. And the question is not well, – well, the question is basically the good news is that you won't ever feel sick, and the bad news is that you'll have no notice at the moment of your death. So, again, the question is, you have five to ten years left, what would you do in, in the time you have remaining? And sometimes you wonder, well, do I, do I still have all the money in the world? And the answer is no. This should be a poignant question. 
So under your current circumstances, if you knew you only had five to 10 years left, and some of us are living under a little bit of this threat right now, mm-hmm. uh, COVID certainly brought it up for me at age 72. I, it brought up, wow, I mean, it might be a matter of weeks if I'm not careful. And so I've been on a tear to deliver my own life plan much more rapidly than I otherwise would have done. So this is meant to stir that up. What five to 10 years left, what would you do? How would you live your life? And the the third question goes deeper yet. And it's this time the same beginning scenario. You're going to the doctor and you're feeling perfectly healthy, but the doctor's been doing some tests and stuns you with news that you've got an ailment and it's already past term. You've got basically a day left to live. And the question is, is changed. The question is not what would you do with that day? The question is to reflect on all the things you thought you might do going forward, all your anticipations, your excitements, and and instead to tell us what did you what did you miss dying within 24 hours? What is it that you did not get to do? What is, who is it that you did not get to be? And that's really, that's by far, you can see it as you, as you hear it. It's the most important question. It's the, because it's, it's the, the legacy. Pardon me, I'm just going to shut the door here. It's the legacy question. It's who are you meant to be? What are you meant to do? Let's get going on it. And so that's the exciting. And sometimes people feel that they... It's, it's so powerful. I often add, what have you not said? And I find that oh, very wonderful. provocative for people to, to, cause we, we often put off and, you know, it's sort of you reach, you think about reaching the end with regrets. And so the issue is if you can really pose these questions, I think they're just so powerful. And then think about, you know, let's, let's start now, you know, however much time we have, COVID or not, to say what we, need to or do what we need to so that hopefully at the end we don't have regrets and I you just have it I think these questions just they're so powerful and beautiful and they really do elicit very powerful openings I think to oneself so I I thank you for sharing these these questions and all too and and before we sort of I mean I, I think maybe we'll at some point I know people are going to want to know how do how does one find people trained in your method or, or, you know, who have a holistic approach. I mean, maybe we can take a moment for that now and then if, if yeah. that's okay with you. Okay. Yeah, I'd be happy to. The, our, we have a designation that's kind of our signature designation. It's called the Registered Life Planner designation. And you can find a list of people really all over the world, thousands of people who've taken our programs on kinderinstitute.com. And just do an advisor search. Great. I think that's helpful for the listeners to know. Right. So let's shift now because clearly what's, I think, coming through, and you've said it yourself with your poetry and writing and mindfulness, and I'm aware that you've been a mindfulness practitioner for, I think, about 50 years and a teacher of it for about 30 years. So how, what led you to mindfulness well, and let's see, I think I'll go back to the first slide just for the moment here. The, okay. I, I think it, it's interesting. I, I, I think I was into it really almost from birth, Dorian. I, 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 was, I, I, had, I had an experience around birth, really just moments after birth, that I have recalled. I recalled in my in my 30s to do it during an investigation of really deep and powerful feelings and emotions. And I realized that I had some awareness of just kind of the materiality of the world and of our our conflicts constantly being hooked by 
our, our process of selfing and everything, and of there being something that was much more profound, much deeper. And I think I w- so I think I was intuitively aware. I grew up in a strongly Christian culture, but I was passionate in college and thereafter to explore world religions and to practice, <laughs> and not so much the ideas as to practice what they were practicing, feeling that the experiential practices delivered something that was extraordinary. So I've, in a way, been interested for forever, and I began a serious life of spiritual practice 50 years ago, again, practicing many different traditions during that first 15 or 16-year period. And then after the first 15 or 16 years, I settled down into what is now known as a mindfulness practice, a practice Mm -hmm. that primarily approaches the present moment as its a kind of source and its challenge. And so I, I think for me, many people approach mindfulness because of the notion that they could reduce stress or d- diminish suffering. I approached it because I thought it that our experiences were more profound than how we lived in the world and how the world presented uh, life to us. So... That was that was for me what it was. Yeah. And you have this, I can't remember the specific question that you posed, but I, I remember just reading in the oh, yeah. Golden Civilization book about when you were three and this kind yeah. of curiosity. Could you mention that? Because I, I just was really moved by that too when I read it. Yes, yes, that was that was <laughs> astonishing for me. And, and you now know that I, I for years, I, I could recall my third year or the year that I turned three better than any other year in my life. And I thought it was the most extraordinary year that I'd ever lived <laughs> and filled with freedom. So that was an amazing thing. And freedom has been a huge passion for me throughout my life, both to uh, find a way to deliver more of it uh, into the world for others and to make sure that I had an experience. Uh, regular experience of it myself. But at age three, one of the extraordinary things that happened to me was this question, this philosophical question. And it's a question that's been asked in virtually every philosophical tradition uh, all over the world, philosophical and religious tradition. And it's, why is there something? There should be nothing. Meaning that every, if everything moves toward death, why is there anything at all? There, 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 there should be nothing. And this was also with an early and precocious mind around mathematics, just looking at the number zero and contemplating that in some way. At some point in my 20s, I had this explosion of experience that said everything is. I just everything is, you know, it's, all of this is much more about everything being and being vital than it is about moving toward death. I know, I mean, one of the ways I've come to think about the world, we, you know, we're, we're still in a Freudian landscape, we're still in a Darwinian landscape a bit, attempting to move out of it in some ways. But the, the notion of competition as being what nature is about, I think nature is much more about creating environments where creatures like ourselves can live with enormous freedom and vitality. I think that's what kind of the universe is about, is creating those environments. And so the best of civilization, which is what my last book, uh, which I know we'll get to, is about is how do we create those environments? So I've I've wandered a little bit from the mindfulness arena, but it all connects. It it does connect. Let's just come back to the mindfulness for a moment, though, because Stephen from Washington, he he asks, what's the definition of mindfulness? What's the science behind it? And Perhaps you can speak a little to that part. Um, Yeah, so there's been an extraordinary series of scientific studies over the last generation or so, thousands of them. And you can find books about uh, those studies. The best book, I think, particularly for your audience, A Real Awareness of Emotional Intelligence, was a book, is a recent book by Daniel Goleman, the man who uh, coined the, the phrase emotional intelligence for us. And it surveys these thousands of studies. And what it basically shows is that in addition to longevity and less stress and more focus and actually greater intelligence, that it builds tremendous virtues inside of us, including patience, kindness, compassion, equanimity, tranquility, and a variety of other things. But the 
actual definition, the practice, I, I would say is that mindfulness is uh, a practice that it, in which we call ourselves back to the present moment, largely not to thinking, although that can be a part of the practice, but primarily to the present moment as experienced in sensations and the primary locus for those sensations that's used is the sensations of breathing, either at the nostrils or at the belly. So it's a sustained, repetitive practice of returning to the, the present moment experience of, of the breath, of sensations. And it's extraordinary what it delivers. One of the things I think it delivers is freedom and tremendous energy and alertness because the present moment is so difficult to maintain a relationship with. We keep getting thrown back into our thoughts of the past or the future. So, for instance, you see in this chart I've got here, the map of mindfulness, I ask a trick question often of audiences. Have you had a moment of freedom in the past? How many of you have experienced a moment of freedom in the past? And I get everybody to raise their hand. But the truth is that, and I, I then pull the rug out from under everybody and say, nope, you all got it wrong. None of us have ever experienced freedom in the past. We've only ever experienced it in the present moment. And if you think about that, I mean, it's one of those obvious questions Einstein used to talk about. We should keep asking those childlike questions. If you really reflect on that, you have to begin to wonder how come we don't study in all of our courses of study in the world the present moment rather than structures of thought and the past and the future and space, time and space. Why aren't we studying the present moment and our relationship to it if that's where freedom resides? And the stu great study by Daniel Gilbert and Matthew Killingsworth, uh, I recommend you looking up on Google. And it's an extraordinary study that demonstrates that overwhelmingly people who experience happiness experience it not because they're on the beach in Maui, but simply because they're paying attention to this moment. They're in the present moment. So it's just an amazing, an amazing thing. And it's so much part of of you and your being, but also, you know, in, in this newer book that you've written. But But before we move on to that, what, you know, for listeners who perhaps haven't practice mindfulness what since you've been a teacher and i know you talk about it yes. in the book too what what would you recommend to listeners to to help them perhaps get more in touch with their their inner inner being and inner life yeah i i love mindfulness practice and the simplicity of it and the secular nature of it e even though it it comes out of a lot of it comes out of the buddhist tradition it actually you can find aspects of it and elements of it in every tradition. I, I mean, I'm, I'm sorry to be a self-promoter here, but I, I happen to be very partial to the book I wrote called Transforming mm -hmm. Suffering into Wisdom, which is a series of about 80 different practices. They're just reflections. They're just a page or two at length. And they give you a practice to go into. And it talks about how long you should practice and how you should sit and how do you approach the breath and what do you do with emotions. So I, I recommend it. And I also have read most of the practice sections of it, the mindfulness sections of it, onto a YouTube channel. I think it's my YouTube channel, George Kinder, mm -hmm. but you can look at, look at that as well. Right. And the other thing, I think that people who... There are people who have not done mindfulness and people who do do mindfulness. And my recommendation is that if you haven't done it, adapt a regular practice. It, it more than anything in my life, I, I owe everything to it. 50 years of doing it, I've done it a lot. I owe everything, I think, to it. And, and for those of you who practice already some form of spiritual practice, my recommendation is to double the amount you're doing. Hmm. So that's... <laughs> No, that's okay. that's, that, that's helpful to know. Before we shift, there's one other question here from Glenn from North Carolina, which is more about the yeah. money piece, and then we'll move in. Whoops, I just lost it here. Wait, 
Okay, how do you know when you have enough money given all of the uncertainties of life? You might have a low-key lifestyle, but others might need your help in the future, or you might face unknown hardships that you can't anticipate. Yeah, that's the great value of a financial planner, of someone who's trained in uh, the financial planning business, because they they know very specific answers to it. And it's also so, so particularly the this question of how much is enough and 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 what what about these external possibilities that might occur, but there's also you're also asking a question that's a great pitch for life planning as well because when we weigh those those requirements for that someone else may need us in a way that requires our resources, that's a life planning question. And it's a question of, of purpose and passion, and 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 that purpose and passion is what we we have found delivers the most into the world, including to others later in life. So I, I would suggest uh, looking for a registered life planner who also very likely is a certified financial planner. Great, thank you. So let's move to the to your newest book and I, I, I must say too part part of my connection with you was I was at a life planning meeting that you came and, and talked about the golden civilization. And so I had an introduction to it there, which led to my inviting you to be part of this. So and it's so timely when as I was reading it, I was just thinking that, you know, I mean there's such mindlessness in our world right now and we really we, we so need to move in the direction you're talking about. So, and I think you wrote it a couple of years ago. So maybe let's start with why did you write this latest book and, you know, tell, tell the listeners about it. Yeah. Well, I, I was stimulated to write it by the Great Recession, by the banking crisis of 2008, 2009, because I was nearing or at a retirement age and and I was devastated by the economics of what, what had happened. And I felt that I'd spent a career trying to build greater integrity into the financial industry. And I just couldn't believe what had come down, what had happened, and how many people were suffering so deeply and so profoundly. So the book started out as a, what I called a banking manifesto. And there was a lot of rage and anger, passionate. I mean, I suppose righteous indignation would be more the term. But it developed over time into something that was, I realized that it was really life planning that would solve this, that what we needed was not anger at the banks or the financial advisors or the system or the politicians. What we really need is a profound and powerful vision just like in life planning, of what what we're about, as Homo sapiens, what 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 we want, and rather than thinking, oh, it's always compromise, and having this codependent relationship with our politicians. I mean, I'm passionate right now about this election, and I want to, you know, root the right team on in a way. But but our politicians, we have a codependent relationship with. They get an office and they don't do exactly what we want. And and I I thought, you know, it's time. Nobody wants corruption. Let me just show this chart. Nobody wants corruption in the world. Nobody. Nobody wants wars. Nobody wants a sick planet. Nobody. And when I say that, yeah, maybe there's two or three people or a few dozen or a few thousand. But compared to seven billion, nobody wants war, corruption. I'm just looking at the chart, which doesn't come through as well here in my, this is under negative externalities, but nobody wants those things. Nobody wants distrust. So my thought was, well, in life planning, we create this incredible vision and we make it so rich and so powerful for our clients that they can't say no to it. They move automatically into that great vision and with passion and with energy. So my thought was, why don't we do that for civilization? Let's make that happen. So I, I, so I wrote my version of it, and you'll see that civilizations we have it right now as great brains. One of the questions I ask people is, and particularly people who are 
uh, huge fans of the capitalist model, and lots of us are appreciative of it, and I'm appreciative of it. But if you look at, we've had 250 years since Adam Smith outlined what, what great economics looks like. And we don't even pay attention to really to what he said, because he talked about great hearts as well. But if we look at the model of our, our institutions, corporations, governments, and nonprofits, how many of them automatically, after 250 years of development, wouldn't you think that at the top of every hierarchy of power we create, the best of humanity would reside? We would find great wisdom and great compassion, our great hearts, at the top of every hierarchy of power. How come we don't find it in virtually at the top of virtually any of them? And also filtering all the way down. So my passion in the book was to say it's time to do that. I mean, none of us want all these crazy things going on. Let's gather together, create the vision of civilization we want, and stop compromising and insist on it's time to restructure how we structure institutions, and it's time also to do this mindfulness inner work that makes each of us a better listener and a better person. So I think that's that's really where it came from, Doreen. And can you share your vision of this the map of mindfulness? I know you've you've mentioned it, but but what's yeah. the process involved to help create this, basically? So I had it up here a moment ago and let me go back to it. There you see it in, in Map of Mindfulness. I, this insight that the present moment is the most extraordinary thing and is really where everything comes from, the past and the future, that, that the present moment deserves a much larger place in our kind of mapping of how we nav navigate the world. I mean, we and, and many people in your in your audience will be thinking, well, what do I do next? You know, how do I get uh, my food on the table? And it used to be we would go out and get food from Whole Foods or wherever we get it from the local shops. And so we'd be mapping in our brain how we would get there and the time we would spend and what aisles we'd go down and how quickly we'd get back. And it's all a mapping of time and space. But in fact, the only moment we've ever experienced is the present moment. And if we uh, give uh, due reverence to time and space and the usefulness of it, but if we shift so that we have greater attention to what the present moment delivers for us, which it delivers freedom and it delivers happiness and it delivers what I call here awakening, then we're likely, and, and the other thing it delivers, as you see in this map, by using mindfulness to meet the present moment again and again, we are undermining our habit of reflecting all of our life around where I'm going, who I am, what I've done recently, all this I, me, and my stuff, which is useful. I mean, we, have, we need that, but we get bogged down in it. And what happens when we uh, meditate and use mindfulness is that we shift a habit. Our, our cognitive habit shifts from a focus on ourselves and our orientation in the world, in the universe, to the present moment itself. And as we're doing that, we're actually cultivating selflessness. And that means when we come back to civilization, to ourselves, and to time and space, we're bringing these virtues that are incorporated, as you see the map, the map looks like an hourglass where the present moment is at the center, and there's a base down below it that has great spirit, great virtue, great peace in it, and that's the area of selflessness, and we're able to bring that, those virtues, more into civilization. So we're building more character, more authenticity, more honesty, greater integrity into civilization through our practice, our inner practice of mindfulness. But that said, we also need to shift how we understand and how we structure institutions in our lives. Can you speak 
more about that? I have a, a, a number of questions yeah. for people too, but but you know, how does this conversation sort of evolve for you? And because I know you talk about the need to change institutions and understanding leadership in different ways, so perhaps you can sort of spell that out more for people listening. Yes. Well, great. Let me let me go two places then. So again. My thought is we are a democracy, and as much as we question that and worry about that, we should claim that space, own it, own it inside ourselves. We are a democracy, and we can do whatever we want within a generation. We can make these shifts happen. So this is a chart. I've had this chart up between civilization and the golden civilization. Here is a simple sentence that I would like to see instituted in law that would change all of our institutional development so that wisdom could, in fact, emerge at the top of every hierarchy of power. And then I want to go to the conversations that you mentioned. So the sentence here is just simply about a, what we call a fiduciary standard. And, and here we say a fiduciary standard of obligation is required for all institutions, corporations, nonprofit, and governmental to place the interests of all stakeholders of humanity, democracy, and the living planet that sustains us first above their own self-interest. So I think if we had something that said to our corporations and our nonprofits and our governments, you are required to place humanity and democracy and the living planet above your own self-interest, I think we would have uh, that we would find that wisdom would develop and more of a, a holistic approach to civilization rather than a narrow and competitive one. So what, what has come out of this, Dorian, is that we have had golden civilization conversations. So I've got up now a frame for a golden civilization conversation, and we've held them in hundreds of locations all over the world. One of the great exciting privileges that I had in the last couple of years was holding them in Hong Kong. Unfortunately, we, we now see something shifting in Hong Kong toward more dictatorship in China. But they were passionate about democracy. And so the golden civilization conversation has three elements, like the, the vision and the obstacles and the actions of a life plan, we have a, a vision conversation. It's a third of the conversation typically, and we have an obstacles conversation. And this is all about civilization. And we, then we have a, question, uh, a conversation about what actions do we need to take and what commitments are we interested in doing. And what we do is we build a vision of a golden civilization asking the community that we're working with. It could be just our family over the, the kitchen table could be four or six people, or it could be 460 people. And we put all the elements of that vision into a circle. And there, what's wonderful is that they're the same. You know, whether you're in the heart of Africa, whether you're in poverty-stricken India, whether you're in politically torn Hong Kong, America, England, Europe, wherever you are, the vision of a golden civilization is similar because it comes out of who we want to be as people and how we want to be in community. So there's vitality, there's collaboration, there's kindness, there's energy, there's solving poverty issues. So nobody lives in poverty. There's democratic freedoms, there's integrity, there's honesty, uh, there's truth, there's science, all of these things. There's rich culture, there's laughter. And the, these responses happen Similarly, everywhere. And so in, in obstacles, the obstacles to a golden civilization are also similar all over the world, but with a difference in that America right now is in a political season. And you'll see more perhaps about the politics in this moment, or it's just gone through a real questioning about racism. So you'll see more about racism, but you'll see both politics and racism in every culture in the uh, heart of India, there was much more about poverty and inequality than there is in other cultures where I've led the conversation. But there's much about poverty 
and inequality everywhere. So it's a wonderful, heartening thing. And my, my notion was, and then the actions that we're, we take from this, it's a conversation that's meant to be ongoing and not just a one-time conversation. So you build a community that is moving into action to make the golden civilization happen at the very least in their community, but also taking global actions, national actions, and each person making a commitment at the end of the conversation as to what they'll do over the next two or three weeks between now and the next golden civilization conversation. And sometimes it's as simple as I'm going to do an extra act of kindness. I'm going to meditate more. I'm going to watch my anger and see if I can work more to, to greater patience and more listening. Or maybe I'm going to register people to vote, or I'm going to protest the di diminution of environmental laws. So, Or I'm going to get out there with the protests about Black Lives Matter. So th there, it's wonderful because it creates a community where lots of different things can happen, and it can it branch both the more conservative of us and the more liberal of us. It's not the red and blue states come up with a similar vision, similar obstacles. The actions are a little bit different. But if we understand we're all aiming toward a golden civilization, what a wonderful thing. It does sound... I'm so sorry that my dog is barking in the background and I can't mute myself right now. <laughs> <That's wonderful>. So <laughs> sorry about that. Um, that's I, different. I have to be. Yeah. Oh, no, go ahead. Well, no, there's a wonderful uh, question. One of the great Zen masters in ancient history, Rinzai, was asked many times what is enlightenment. And one time he said, do you hear, do you hear the dog barking? <laughs> so anyway, that's a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, so Gail asks, and she actually has a couple of questions, but, but I think it relates right now to what you were just saying. How do you envision measuring the degree of success toward your fiduciary standard? I, right now, I've just written it up, and you're the second kind of talk where I've introduced mm -hmm. it in a PowerPoint. Mm -hmm. I've introduced it in addition to 15 or 20 thought leaders in the life planning movement. And so I'm just beginning to popularize it and reach out with it. So mm -hmm. I think for me, the issue it, right now is let's popularize it. So if, if Gail likes it, share it. Talk, mm -hmm. talk to me or my staff about it. Share it with others and say, wouldn't this cure a lot of things? Let's popularize it first so that people really are thinking about it and realizing that we could solve this with one with one stroke of the pen. And as we build, it's a grassroots movement, I, I think. And as we build that movement and begin to make it into more of a political discussion, then we have we bring our politicians in and call on their support. So I think there are many ways to do it. Right now a lot's being done through the through our, our churches, our social justice communities around making the, the whole ESG movement, the old socially responsible investment movement. There's a lot of movement around this, but I think this being just a single sentence is so wonderful to work to popularize. So I, I'm going to measure it by how, how often it gets out and how much we're able to spread it Great. in these early days. Yeah. So I, I do have other questions, but I know it's almost the top of the hour and, and we can go a few yeah. minutes after, but some people may have to leave. So how can listeners connect with you around forming their own conversation circles? What, what's what been the yeah. process? Yeah, we have. I have up now a slide that shows many of the terms, the most popular terms coming out of uh, these conversations. And it has their, the website, www.com. A, the A is very important, A, goldencivilization.com. Otherwise, I think you go to some jewelry site or something, I'm not sure. But it's A, goldencivilization.com. And there's lots of resources there. And, and feel free to email as well. People in the community, my staff, is eager to, to help. And uh, we can connect you with other groups that have also led these conversations. And I give, every three weeks, I give an open conversation about it on Zoom. So, Oh, and how does one access your, that, George? 
Well, that, I think it'll all be on a goldencivilization.com. I think oh, at, that, at the there. website. And, okay, yeah, great. And, and, and again, email my staff if you find, if you find it confusing or can't. It should be all there, but if, if in any way you feel you're lacking something, uh, email my staff and they will connect you with that. Let me bring up some of the other questions then that people have asked, and we can maybe talk a little bit more here. Patrick from Utah says, George, do you see our U.S. American society moving toward greater peace, virtue, and spirit? Well, if we don't, you know, I'm 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 both optimistic and pessimistic. I think we're we're really at a crossroads where, with the environment and with democracy. If we fail to really protect democracy now, I I fear because Beijing and and uh, Moscow are so so powerful, and Europe has become fragmented. So and and the globe. I I you know we could solve the global problem of, of warming, but if you don't have democracy, some crazy person is going to get in office again and throw us off in some crazy ways. And so I, I am optimistic because I think at our root and at the root of nature is this creating of wonderful environments for people to live in freedom. We've gotten off track and hopefully we're about to get on track again. So I think the practice of mindfulness and the addressing of our political problems right now is terribly important. And I'll tell you, Dory, you didn't ask, but I, I, I've been eager to share. I've spent my COVID time just the last six weeks with my 17-year-old daughter writing songs of protest that we're about mm-hmm. to release. Mm-hmm. So, so I just encourage everybody to be active. That's great. Where where will that be available? Would it be through your goldencivilization.com website, a uh, goldencivilization.com. I think so, and, and through my Facebook, through my Facebook through pages, Facebook. you can connect with my George Kinder Facebook page, and Golden Civilization has a group page where I'll be putting okay. them on as well. Oh, great. So let me ask a few of the other questions and then come back. Sure. Bit more. I mean, I, as I was saying at the beginning, I think the timing of thinking about this, just given how things are going in our country, it's so important yeah. to, to connect in these ways. Colin from Hawaii says, is the focus of life planning primarily focused on purpose and passion in terms of self-enrichment, or do you consider purpose and passion beyond ourselves as a goal for the golden civilization? How can we marshal retire to move in that direction. Yeah, wonderful. And and the, what I learned early on was not to do my best not to impose my ideas and or my passions on another person. So, for instance, the way the conversations evolved was that I suddenly realized that I'd written a book that I, I thought was was doing what I wanted to inspire people and everything, but I realized that it was my vision, and I wanted people, communities' visions, people, other people's visions. So we created a structure of conversations where other people could come up with their visions for golden civilization. And in a similar way toward life planning, I think it's most important that we answer those three questions and find what our passionate purpose is. And if it's if in this moment it's just about myself because I've been so ah, stressed and bottled up by the demands of, you know, economy or whatever, I want to support that in everyone. But if you find your way to your own freedom, most people then move forward delivering that to other people. They become inspired to deliver to other people. So I'm I'm not attached to is it communal or is it personal? I think for everyone they come up with their own answers and if we support them that they will find their way to con- to contribute in the most efficient and dynamic way to the civilization we all want. So opening people kind of to themselves and to their passion of making the world a better place is part of what yeah. I'm hearing. In a way, you maybe answered this other question, but I want to just ask it from Gail. She says, do you incorporate mindfulness or lead your clients, even if they may not always be aware, toward the benefit of mindfulness and going through life planning with your clients? And if so, how? how do you, so basically, she's asking, how do you use mindfulness with your clients? 
Yeah, great. I I don't have individual clients anymore. I I have been I've dedicated the last twenty years of my life to training advisors. When I had clients, I virtually never used mindfulness in my engagements because they expected a financial planner and I didn't want to impose something where they might have some squeamish feelings. So how I used it with them was in my own bearing. If I'm really at peace inside myself and I'm at peace with my own anxiety, then when their anxieties come up around money, I'm able to model having that peace and having that selflessness and being able to think clearly for them. If it came about that they were intrigued in some way with either spiritual practice or with an internal practice, I could then share, I felt very comfortable to share with them, or if it was part of their third question, I could feel very comfortable to share with them what I knew and my expertise there. And it, it is true that quite a few clients of mine did end up studying mindfulness with me thereafter, but I never led with it. With my advisors, the training of advisors, and with the golden civilization, we incorporate a bit of mindfulness into every conversation and into every training because we feel that it's at the basis of becoming a great listener, a great advisor, and of delivering uh, character and virtue and selflessness into civilization. Thanks. That's a nice response. So what if, if people want to begin the conversations of the golden civilization, and you had mentioned, you know, it could be around the family table or, you know, a, a church or somehow in the community. What what would be, and, and you even mentioned before, even just one act could be just, making a decision to be kinder with somebody. And I remember you said at the life planning meeting, maybe talk to somebody with different viewpoints that you'd never talked to before. What, what would be some of the, the the steps that you would recommend that that people just starting out, how they could mm. start to, to, to move in that direction? Mm. Yeah, wonderful. I First of all, I, I want to say, I, I want to reach out with my own helping hand and say that, that I am eager, my staff is eager, and people, there are people we have who've led these conversations in numerous places around the world who are eager to help anyone. And and now in this time of Zoom, (laughs) we can participate from all over the world. So, So we're likely to find someone who might engage with you and partner with you and it might even be myself. That, that's, that's a possibility. So I just want to say that that's possible. If you go on the website and you kind of learn how you might do it. I think that, Dorian, you, you've just read the, the book, The Golden Civilization. That's right. a great place to begin. It's more yep. comprehensive and it's more complex, but it's a deep dive into all of this. And the website is a much simpler and lighter dive. So you might kind of go back and forth between the two and see what you think. And then I would, I'd dive into a conversation, look at the structure of these flip charts that we have, this vision, obstacles, and actions, and start it with your, with your family around the, the kitchen table. It, it's exciting. It's inspiring. Yeah, You'll be inspired by what your yeah. family shares. That's great, yeah. And I do really recommend the book. You can, I have it, and I, I've read it, and also have it on Audible because I was driving, oh. and and it's it's really nice to listen to it too. But it's nice. The the book oh. has all of the the maps and everything in it. So you mentioned oh. a little of what's next for you of doing this song mm. of protest with your seventeen year old daughter. What 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 else for you? Is it predominantly moving in this direction of of, of getting this? You know, continuing to be, I guess, a worldwide, global movement of uh, the golden civilization. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm still a, a leader and, and inspiring figure in the life planning movement, and I'll continue mm-hmm. to do that. And but I'm not doing so many trainings, so that gives me more time. Mm-hmm. And very much want to inspire the golden civilization. So I, no doubt we'll continue that. 
also. But where my additional practices, what I, I mean, I typically have a conversation like this or a, a talk or a speech a number of times a week. And the rest of my time, I'm actively, I'm spending several hours a day meditating. And I'm spending, and right now I'm fine-tuning 20 years of poetry and mm. photography that I've done with my other daughter. Mm. She's helping me develop a lot of the photographs on, on Lightroom and Photoshop. And I'm putting together a series of books that are an intermingling of my poetry and photography that I hope are a kind of a way of teaching, yet another way of teaching, and teaching this a deeper engagement with ourselves and with nature and the world around us. So I'm really enjoying that, that creative burst and the spiritual life right now is where I am. Oh, that sounds so wonderful and inspiring. I mean, you, you are the role model of growing, learning, evolving, and being really vital and just kind of expanding um, yourself, both inward as well as outward. This has been lovely. Are there any final things you'd like to say, George, sort of as a final takeaway for people about your work, your life, a golden civilization, a map of mindfulness? Uh, Colin asked the question about, was it Colin who asked the question about hope or was it someone else uh, about you? Um, well, no, that about greater peace, virtue, and spirit in our country? Yeah. Who was it that asked that question? That was, that was Patrick. 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 So I, I think the most important thing right now is, um, is for all of us not to lose hope and to do everything we can to strengthen ourselves. And I think mindfulness is a wonderful way, but everybody knows what that way is. It may be physical exercise. It could be diet. It could be connecting with our friends. So I think it's really important right now to strengthen ourselves and to deliver what we think would most help this country with all of the strength and the passion we can give to it over the next three months. I think that's just really, really profoundly important. And if we do that, I think we're going to find that there's more wisdom in our species, in our country, and in our culture than we imagined. Well, that's a very hopeful place to end. So... Thank you. Thank you so much for taking time and being with us and sharing your wonderful contributions about mindfulness, life planning, and, you know, hopefully moving towards saving our world, <laughs> our democracy and, and the world really is what, what you're talking about. And I hope we all can connect around this. So thank you. And I hope you will We'll, we'll stay connected and maybe at another point you'll come rejoin us and we can continue the conversation. Thank you very much. Thank you everybody for being here and stay well and safe. You've been listening to Revolutionize Your Retirement Radio with Dr. Dorian Mincer. To learn more about the resources mentioned on today's show, listen to past episodes, or download our free retirement transition guide, visit revolutionizeyourretirementradio.com.